The novel Between Two Moons tells many stories all at once. There's the coming-of-age story of three siblings growing up in Brooklyn, a family story of immigrant parents raising their children in a new country while maintaining their culture and faith, and the story of a community under surveillance by local and federal authorities. Amira, the main character, is the voice that weaves all these stories together. The creator of that voice is Aisha Abdel Gawad, the author of Between Two Moons, and she joins me here in the studios at WSHU. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. The The first scene uh, of the book kind of brings all these threads together. It's the first morning of Ramadan, and Amira's family's waking up just before sunrise in their apartment in Bay Ridge to the sounds of police raiding a cafe owned by uh, a person identified uh, as the Libyan across the street. And you kind of jump right into the deep end, right in with, with both feet. Why did you make this your opening scene? I knew I wanted to set the book during Ramadan, which is sort of an intense time for Muslims anyway. There's a lot of expectations, right, that you're going to purify yourself, that you're going to spend time with family, you're going to recenter and regroup. And then I wanted to sort of throw a wrench in that by at the same time introducing right away this threat that the community faces from law enforcement. And a threat that's really hard to understand. So Amira wakes up and she sees the police raiding this business, but she doesn't know why. She doesn't know exactly who are these people doing the raiding and what will happen. So I sort of wanted immediately to introduce this idea that there is a lurking threat and that this Ramadan is not going to be the same as every other Ramadan that this teenage girl has sort of like endured as a chore for the rest of her life. And of course, the title of the book, Between Two Moons, references the period of Ramadan. Yes, right, because in Ramadan uh, starts by spotting the kind of thinnest crescent moon and it ends that way too. Um, and then, of course, I think of Amira as being pulled between lots of different forces throughout the book. So there's lots of different moons, so to speak, that she is kind of stuck between. And through Amira, uh, we see how fasting all day for the month impacts how she gets through her day pretty much every day. She gets headaches, wants to take aspirin, can't do that, smells that were uh, pleasing they're really not, makes her nauseous at times. Uh, how does fasting drive the plot in this book? Fasting is, of course, a really hard physical challenge, especially for Muslims in America, I think. You know, if you're um, in a majority Muslim country, the whole country adapts, right? It switches to the schedule of Ramadan. It accommodates. And America doesn't accommodate, right? So if you have an exam and you're fasting, tough luck. If you have soccer practice, you're a teenager, tough luck. You have a really important meeting at work, tough luck. So there's a really grueling physical aspect. Also, your body is going through these different sensations, and it does sort of change the way you think and the way you process. And I wanted to sort of explore the hardness, right, the difficulty of the physical challenge of Ramadan, but also the, the spiritual side of Ramadan, right? There is this idea of a mind-body connection and to have that explored through a teenage girl, right, who barely knows what her mind is thinking at times, right, but who actually is sort of interested in this idea of purifying the mind-body connection. We were talking about this amongst ourselves here at the station, that um, 
when it comes to fasting, it would seem that it's especially difficult for teenagers. Older folks maybe have done it enough so that they know how to uh, to deal with it, but just the teenage body, female or male, you burning up all sorts of calories and, and new hormones flying around it, it's got to be especially difficult, I would think, for a teenage person. Yes, I think it is. And also there's this added element that teenagers care more about what their peers think. And Amira and her sister Alina, they feel sometimes they really want to fast, like they want to do it. It's not always a chore for them. But then as teenagers go, then the next minute, they don't, right? And they they want to do something totally different. They want to be free to eat, drink, dance, and do whatever they want. And then the next moment, you see them sort of returning and saying, no, 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 we, we have to do our fast. Um, and I think that's really typical of teenagers, whether they're Muslims or not, to sort of move between those extremes. And Amira and Lena, her sister, uh, they're twins, not identical twins. Why make them twins? What element does that add to to the, uh, the story? You know, they didn't start as twins. At first, uh, they were just friends, these two girls. Oh, not even the same family. No, and mm. then I made them cousins, and then I made them sisters, <laughs> and then I made them twins. So as I was working on this book, I kept kind of sort of shoving them closer to each other. And I think I was interested, I really wanted to explore the intensity and the intimacy that I think is is capable in a relationship between two women. And, and in this case, they're twins, right? So they have this sort of built-in connection. But I wanted to sort of use a sort of symbolism of twins, right, of these two girls who came from the same womb, right, the same mother at the same time, to sort of stand in as a metaphor for what I think is possible in sisterhood and female friendship at large. Even though their personalities at times are quite, quite different. Lena dresses more provocatively, uh, drinks more often, it seems, goes to parties. Amira seems more measured in her ways. It was important for me to show that Muslim women can appear in lots of different ways. Muslim women who identify as Muslims and are actually proud of being Muslim can identify and behave and express their faith in lots of different ways. And I wanted to sort of illustrate that between these two sisters. The family, uh, the larger family, the twins, the parents, they're dealing with, with a lot of change the summer before the, uh, the girls are heading into college. The older brother, Sammy or Sami? Sammy. Sammy. So Sammy is getting out of jail the older brother, and this kind of throws the family dynamic on its head. Uh, Amira's working to adjust to all of these changes. How does that work into your story, and what point were you looking to emphasize there? I was interested in, in exploring how young people often explore gender and think about how they're supposed to perform their genders. I think young people often practice that in the family unit before they go out into the larger world. So the boy, right, uh, the brother, Sammy, who's always been a source of sort of trauma for the family, has always been in trouble, has been in prison. And while he's been gone, the girls have really sort of relished in the space they've had um, to sort of have their parents' attention. Um, they think it's, this, they're graduating high school, they think it's gonna be their summer of freedom of becoming women. 
And when they find out that their brother is coming home, right, they sort of realize that the family is going to recenter on him, refocus on him. He's going to be the priority. And that's really disappointing and difficult for these girls to navigate. And I was also interested in exploring how does incarceration affect a family unit? How are these people who have become strangers to each other going to learn to be together again? And he also, if I understood uh, it correctly, when he was quite young, infants, was experiencing night terror, which extraordinarily uh, bad dreams, essentially, I guess, were screaming and, and the inability to calm down. Uh, it, it really infects a person. And that clearly made him the center of attention for at least a time before the girls were born. Yes. And I, I think, you know, this character, Sammy, I wanted to show him as always being being a very sort of deeply feeling young man, but not knowing how to express himself, right? And not really having the skills to express himself. Whereas the girls, the world may not be as interested in what they want to say, but the girls have a lot more skills to express their emotions and they have each other. So Sammy has always sort of been a loner on the outside, isolated. And the girls have had each other, right, as mirrors to sort of reflect each other's emotions back to one another and help each other understand how to navigate the world. One of the issues they're dealing with is the surveillance that they have to endure because they live in a a Muslim community in in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. And in the book, you include a copy of an NYPD, New York Police Department Intelligence Division Demographics Progress Report on Bay Ridge. Uh, There are maps of the area, also that section that's really heavily redacted. Is this an authentic intelligence report? No, this is a report of my own creation, but it is based on real reports and quite similar to the real reports. So people may read this and think, well, this is this is absurd, the type of mundane details, you know, the, the NYPD spying on what kind of library book a Muslim got out from the library, where someone got their hair cut, what they did at the gym, and you might think, well, this is absurd. How many seats are in this coffee shop? But it's real. Those were the details that were reported. And so really, Muslim Americans' lives were surveilled with such an intensity, and it's just these mundane details that are imbued with a sense of menace, right? Everything feels dangerous because the police is writing about it. But really, there's nothing dangerous at all in these reports. And this is the post-9-11 period. Um, more specifically, what uh, what group of years would you put this in? Yeah, I leave the, the years kind of unspecified yeah. in the book. But really, I'm thinking about peak NYPD surveillance was perhaps at around 2010, kind of roughly when I picture it in my head. Um, and that was two years before the Associated Press sort of broke this story. So 2010, the police is still doing this sort of unbeknownst to the public. And is this why you included the report that you created in the book? Because it's basically a chapter unto itself. It's almost um, startling running across it in in the the midst of the story. Yes. I wanted the characters of the book to be struggling with a vague sense of being watched, but no proof of being watched, no sense of 
of who is watching or where they might be or if it's even real. And so there's this sense of watching, a theme of watching throughout the book. And then I did want to include this report as a sort of confirmation, but even the report itself is, as you said, it's heavily redacted. You don't know who are they writing about exactly, um, what are they going to do with this information, who are their informants, right, who's a sort of enemy like lurking in their midst. And so I, I wanted there to be this sense of threat, but not being able to determine where the threat is coming from. And in the midst of that that setting, in the, in the midst of that uh, condition, they are looking for acceptance from fellow New Yorkers. And there's a scene where Amira is handing out flyers or has just handed out flyers with Lena, with her sister, outside a mosque. And I'm wondering if you'd read that passage for us, uh, the interaction that she has while standing uh, essentially alone with uh, a young police officer. Sure. I told myself I wouldn't wonder what Sammy had been doing on that strange walk around Bay Ridge. Don't even think about it, I told myself. Don't even care. I was feeling okay, but then I showed up at the center the next day, and instead of having me sit at the front desk like usual, they wanted me to walk around from mosque to mosque, handing out the what to do when the FBI knocks flyers that we've handed out dozens of times before. People had been coming in and telling stories about how they had been followed by a black SUV, how they had heard a strange clicking on the phone, how the mailman had been acting, acting strangely lately. Ever since Abu Jamal, people are, Layla tapped a finger to her brain. She thrust the stack of flyers into my hands and told me to enjoy the fresh air. It was 97 degrees outside and as humid as an armpit. Lena came with me, I guess because she had nothing else to do. Passing out flyers to Arabs was easy. It wasn't like those poor guys I'd seen in Manhattan trying to give away flyers to New Yorkers who would rather die than take one. No, with Arabs, all you had to do is stand still, hold out the stack of papers, and wait for them all to come to you. Arabs can't stand to be left out of anything. We went to the closest mosques first, gave a few flyers away in front of Abu Nuwas and Baladi Foods, but we still had about half the stack left. What about Masjid al-Medina? Lena asked. I didn't want to go back there, but I didn't want to tell her why, either. So we ended up standing outside of the women's entrance of Masjid al-Nur, because the imam there had once scolded me for standing too close to the men's entrance. I caught one woman before she went inside. Would you like one? I asked her in Arabic. I handed her a pamphlet, and she turned it over in her hand. Then she went inside without saying anything to me. Within minutes, streams of women were coming out of the mosque. All of them were asking for a flyer. Lena and I were both mobbed by clutching hands. When they had each gotten one, they filed back into the mosque. Lena and I leaned against the brick wall of the building, panting. That was intense, she said. And then, I gotta pee. Lena went inside to the mosque to use the bathroom while I shuffled a few yards away to stand under a patch of shade. What was that all about? A voice called out. I looked up and saw a uniformed cop approaching me. He was walking alone on the rather empty street, nothing here except for the mosque and a giant warehouse with faded Chinese lettering scrawled across the side. It was strange to see a cop by himself. They usually came in pairs, like Lena and me except here we both were, alone. The police officer was young and handsome. 
He had sweet, curly black hair and blue eyes and rosy Irish cheeks. I found myself sucking in my stomach. Nothing, I stammered, just passing out some flyers. That's cool, he said, like we were old pals. Can I see? I handed him the Arabic flyer. He blinked at it. It's for free mammograms, I said. You're funny, he said. And then he looked me up and down, real obvious about it. You don't look Muslim, he said. It was more reflex than courage that caused what happened next. I meant it objectively, with honest curiosity, more than as a challenge. I said, what do Muslims look like? The pretty cop turned instantly ugly. Now don't go taking offense, he said, both smiling and frowning simultaneously. It was a compliment. And just then, with perfect comic timing, Lena came sauntering out of the masjid. She was still holding her remaining flyers, but she was mostly practicing her model walk. Hi, she called to me, raising her eyebrows at the cop standing next to me, like, everything okay? Don't tell me she's a Muslim, too, the cop said. Lena stopped a few feet away from us, put one hand on her hip. One hundred percent, she said. The cop laughed like it was the funniest joke in the world. Then he kept walking, saying, you girls have a nice day now. I found myself very disturbed by that, that interaction coming relatively early in, in the story, but it seems so um, abrupt and old-fashioned, I might say, in, in, in the cop's attitude. What did you want to illustrate with that? Because there were other, other scenes in the book, more violent and more extreme scenes that, I guess, illustrate the same problem. I think one of the things I was interested in exploring in that scene was a sort of phenomenon that I think uh, developed after 9-11 of categorizing Muslims into good or bad, moderate or extreme. And you sort of had to be funneled into one of those categories. And to be good, right, you had to be not too Muslim, right? You had to be assimilated into American norms, which means really not that committed to your faith and not visibly Muslim. And so in some ways, uh, Amira, even though she wears hijab, she wears it in a sort of different style. You may not always know she's Muslim. You might not know that Lena is Muslim. And so they're not read as threats. They could be friendly. They could be the good ones. And I actually think that the girls really bristle against that, and they really own and claim their identity in the face of this, this interaction with this cop. We were talking about this, uh, Ann Lopez, senior producer and myself were talking about uh, how your novel echoes some themes in another coming-of-age novel set in Brooklyn. It goes back uh, to the 1940s, set in the, I guess, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, Betty Smith's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And in that novel, the main character, also a teenage girl, uh, Francie Nolan, she's living in an Irish community, immigrant community, where people are struggling with with poverty, with ignorance, and with the same sort of attitudes. Is your novel The Struggle, is it living under surveillance? Is it attitudes, even the surveillance put aside? Uh, how does that come together? I, I love the connection to A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. A reader said that to me at a bookstore a few weeks ago, and I was tickled. Um, I think it's, it's both. You know, there's this 
at this point, it's sort of this universal, these universal stories of what is it like for immigrants to start over in America, right? And we've been seeing those books, right? You, you talk about a tree grows in Brooklyn, and they sort of never get old, right? That story of, of what is it like to start from scratch um, and what is possible for immigrants and, and what's possible for different kinds of immigrants in this place. But then I really wanted to layer on this, this element of surveillance because I think a lot of Arab immigrants in particular really sort of thought of themselves before 9-11 as a possible model minority, which we all know is sort of a pernicious myth anyway. But they sort of thought if we're good, if we get education, we can be doctors, we can be lawyers, we can be pharmacists, we can make it in America, we can be loved or accepted or at least merely tolerated in America. And I think um, in the years since 9-11, it sort of blew up that myth for a lot of, of Arabs in particular, right, that they could ever be accepted no matter how hard they tried to be, quote unquote, good. What does that do, uh, living in that sort of constant state of surveillance or, or observation at the very least, what does that do to an immigrant community who's trying to live in, in balance with their surroundings and where they come from? You know, in the book, we see characters reacting to it in different ways. And a lot of the time, sometimes the older generation has this attitude, keep your head down, be quiet, don't draw attention to yourself. And really what it does is it instills fear, right? So no one fights back, uh, not for themselves and certainly not in solidarity with other communities out there. And then we have other characters, um, like there's a character, sort of love interest of Amira's named Faraj, who uh, thinks of himself as an organizer. I don't really know exactly what he's organizing, right? But he has got this fire in him and he wants to fight back and he's desperately seeking other Muslims who are not too afraid to resist. You know, in, in reading the descriptions and the activities and the, um, uh, the backgrounds of the two younger males in the story, Faraj and, and Sammy, it made me wonder if you received any negative feedback about how they were portrayed in the story, the, the, the girls, the women, uh, very strong personalities and, um, you know, working through their problems in a very visible way, at least in the story. Did you get any pushback uh, in, in how you portrayed Faraj and Sammy? You know, it's so interesting that you ask me that. I feel like I've gotten more pushback on how I portrayed the girls, right? Because there's a little bit more sensitivity always for girls of any community, not just Arabs or Muslims, um, this idea that they have to represent the best of their communities. And Amira and Lena are complicated, and they make mistakes, and they do typical teenage things. Um, and so I feel like I've gotten more pushback about that. Like, why aren't the girls a sort of perfect, wholesome representation of Muslim women? And my answer to that is, well, because they're human, right? Because they're teenage girls, and I wanted to allow them to be them full, their full selves. Um, and with Sammy and Faraj, no, I haven't really received any, any pushback um, but I do think of them as two young men who are struggling in different ways with disappointment, with a lack of hope in their ability to sort of like achieve their dreams in this country. 
and with a lot of anger um, that they channel and, and funnel in different ways. Between Two Moons is based to some extent on your personal experience growing up uh, in, in Brooklyn, correct? I'm actually not from Brooklyn. I'm not even from New York. Um, ah. So I can't have all these New Yorkers mad at me for claiming that. Um, I grew up in Northern <laughs> Virginia. So the book is, is fiction. Um, you know, in the vaguest sense, I think in writing this book, I was processing my own coming of age as an Arab and Muslim American woman post 9-11. I'm older than these characters, right? I was in high school when 9-11 happened, but I definitely think I had to do my own processing of how I wanted to define being Arab and a Muslim because I kept bumping up against other people trying to define me and not really finding those definitions adequate or true. But I did also work in Bay Ridge after I graduated from college at the Arab American Association of New York. And Amira works at this community center in Bay Ridge that is, is based heavily on this Arab American Association of New York where I worked. I'm wondering from an author's perspective, what um, makes you decide to present your experience or your coming of age experience in a novel as opposed to something that's more um, nonfiction? You know, I think every writer is different. For me personally, I have zero interest in nonfiction or memoir. I don't like being constrained by the truth <laughs> or by facts. Um, and I'm really interested in, in developing characters freely and without constraint and of being able to blur the line between fiction and nonfiction. And I think some of the things in this book that are fiction, meaning they never happened to me and I don't know if they ever happened to anyone, are still just as true, right, as, as something that would be written in a memoir, say. Ann Lopez, who's on the other side of the glass there, has some more to okay. ask. The one thing that I noticed was that you were talking about how Amira and Lena were very close, but there, it's an interesting point where Amira realizes that her sister's kind of pulling away from her. And I thought that was an interesting point because of the, the personality differences and how they're evolving as young women is going in two different directions, that Amira is realizing her sister is getting closer to a friend where they go out and they party and they drink, and that's not something that Amira tends to do. Yeah, I wanted to sort of, sort of illustrate this like push and pull between the two girls, and I think this is universal to every young woman who is trying to figure out who they are and if the world will let them be who they are. And so Amira and Lena have different ways of trying to explore who they are. And, and I think some of that is by separating. And Lena is ready to separate before Amira is. But then I also wanted to show when they go out, when Lena goes out into the world and she sort of, she really wears her heart on her sleeve and um, when she's hurt, right, particularly by, by men out in the world, how she always has the sort of safe haven of her sister to return to. And so how the girls sort of flee from each other and then when they're hurt or wounded or need a space to heal, they go back home to Bay Ridge and to each other. Great. Hey, thank you so much. It's been fun to talk with you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much.